We'll hear argument now on Tuan Anh Nguyen and Boulay versus Immigration and Naturalization Service. Uh, Ms. Davis. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case raises the question of whether differential treatment of mothers and fathers under federal citizenship law violates the equal protection component of the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment. Joseph Boulay has raised his out-of-wedlock son from infancy. Under 8 U.S.C. Section 1409, an out-of-wedlock mother of a foreign-born child can establish her child's citizenship at birth upon proof of three things, U.S. nationality at the time of the child's birth, parentage of the child, and prior physical presence in the United States. Joseph Boulay meets all of these criteria. However, solely because he's the male parent, the law imposes two additional criteria. First, Mr. Boulay, as a father, must produce a signed statement that he will support the child until his 18th birthday. The father here has supported his son, but he never signed a statement. Second, the father must, before his child's 18th birthday, either legitimate, adjudicate paternity, or formally acknowledge paternity. And here the father has formally acknowledged paternity, but not until his son was in his 20s. Ms. Davis, is this an as-applied or a facial challenge? Uh, Justice O'Connor, this is a facial challenge. We do not believe there's any constitutional uh, basis on which this statute could be applied to uh, individuals. How do you deal with the Fialo case? Uh, Your Honor, the Fialo case uh, concerns the situation of some individuals who are citizens applying for special immigration preferences uh, um, uh, for um, children of those citizens or or, uh, relatives of those citizens. The court here ruled that that was covered by the plenary power. Here, the issue concerns only citizens applying for, trying to transmit citizenship at birth benefits to uh, to parents. And so the difference is the question of what the extent of plenary power is. And we believe that uh, plenary power should stop, uh, at the very least, before it reaches a situation where a citizen, here Mr. Boulay, is seeking to transmit citizenship benefits to a child uh, who, as the statute um, indicates, once citizenship is recognized, will relate back to the date of birth. So I guess there are two basic distinctions. One, that there's a relation back issue. So the citizen's child, the child here, uh, once his citizenship is recognized, will be deemed to have been a citizen from birth, and therefore there isn't any of the concern about transfer of allegiances that's the case in naturalization or also potentially the case in immigration sorts of situations. Wait, why is there no problem with transfer of allegiances? I mean, it, it's fine to, to make it retroactive uh, as far as the law is concerned, but that doesn't change the reality of it. The reality of it is he's not an American citizen until these conditions are, are uh, are met, and, and he's proclaimed to be such. Prior to that, he's not an American citizen, is he? As, as soon as those conditions are met, then his citizenship is recognized well, at the time of birth. That's recognized. But he was a citizen of some other country before then. And once his citizenship is recognized, I, he'll be deemed to have been a dual citizen of the country from the date of birth. But the, uh, the statute itself recognizes that there isn't a transfer of allegiances by virtue of the fact that there isn't an oath of of allegiance that's required for it to, to establish citizenship at birth, unlike naturalization, where that's a substantive requirement of the, of the recognition of the status. David, so, do I take, do I understand correctly the point you're making is that the people who were being brought in or sought to be brought in in Fialo were coming in as aliens who might never become citizens. They were not coming in as citizens, but they were coming in as preference preference-eligible aliens, and now you're saying the the distinction that you're making, if I grasp it correctly, is these people, if you are correct, will never come in as aliens. The application is that their citizenship should be recognized immediately. That's the distinction you make. That's correct, Your Honor. Ms. Davis, you're not suggesting that uh, there's a constitutional right to uh, have your uh, citizenship conferred on an American, the child of an American parent brought aboard? Not at all, Your Honor. What we're saying is this, the immigration statute makes a distinction between citizenship at birth and other forms of, of, of immigration um, status, and that because of that distinction, the plenary power that shields, in some instances, uh, immigration actions from full constitutional review should not apply here. It should stop short of... Uh, barring full constitutional review or ordinary constitutional review of transmission of citizenship from a citizen to well, a well, can you, but the plenary, 
Oh, uh, can you explain to me why, why that is? I, I assume that the plenary power has its uh, basis, its rationale, in the interest that the United States has with its relations uh, with, with foreign powers. And, and why is that inapplicable in, 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 in any case uh, uh, arising under this particular statute? Uh, Justice Kennedy. Why, to, to say that plenty of power stops uh, is, uh, it puzzles, puzzles me. Yes. Justice Kennedy, this Court has, has um, never uh, extended plenary power to every statute that potentially implicates foreign relations. There's certainly there are many, many that do that, including child support and environmental laws. Um, this Court has also never extended plenary power to every action under even the Immigration and Nationality Act in INS versus no, Chadha. What's the rationale for extending plenary power to the alien cases? The rationale that this Court has offered is um, the, the idea that foreign relations is directly implicated, I presume, in part because of this transfer of allegiances. You say, you say Fiala would have come out differently if these aliens were not only admitted, but having been at, once they're admitted, are proclaimed to have been American citizens from birth. That, that would wash out the plenary power of the, of the federal government. Uh, Your Honor, then they would be in the same category as the citizens here. They would have been citizens at birth. That doesn't make any sense to me. If, 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 if you admit them without making them citizens from birth, you have plenary power. But if you do even the greater thing, Admit them and make them citizens from birth. Suddenly, your plenary power disappears. It, it seems to me, if anything, it ought to be the opposite. Uh, your Honor, here what, what we base our argument on is the structure of the statute, as well as the long history of U.S. sanguinous citizenship and this court's uh, um, ruling in Rogers versus Belli, which also indicated that uh, citizenship at birth was subject to ordinary constitutional scrutiny, even though there isn't a right under the 14th Amendment to that citizenship, even though Congress could change the rules of citizenship tomorrow. Still, the statute itself, the history of U.S. sanguinous citizenship, and this Court's construction of that, of that uh, law in Rogers versus Bell, we believe, supports limiting the um, extension of plenary power authority to um, a situation where a citizen here is seeking to transmit citizenship to his child who will be a citizen at birth at the let's, time that citizenship is recognized? If it, let's assume the statute was slightly different and the citizenship to be conferred did not or recognized did not relate back to birth. Would you then say that the statute, with that one change in it, exceeded Congress's plenary power under the Naturalization Clause? Uh, <clears throat> Your Honor, I guess I'm, I'm — Maybe it would be simpler if I, I ask the uh, — I think I can ask the question in a different way. Uh, do you think that the, uh, the, the, the act of recognizing citizenship here for children born abroad is naturalization within the meaning of the naturalization clause? Yes, Your Honor, it is naturalization within the meaning of the Constitutional Naturalization Clause. However, Congress, in implementing that clause, has made choices about how to implement it that that we believe implicate the extent of the plenary power. So the Congress, so far as the the clause is concerned, Congress could do this, leaving aside equal protection. Congress can do this uh, if if it simply did not have the relation back provision. That's that's correct. Um, Your Honor, I mean, uh, we certainly wouldn't be able to argue that the transfer of allegiances and, the, and those issues did no, no longer implicated foreign relations, and that's a, a critical part of our, part of our argument here. Um, let me uh, oh, I, I wonder, suppose there were no naturalization clause, suppose it didn't exist. Wouldn't Congress still have the power to enact this statute? No one is being naturalized. They're simply stating who is a citizen. And just as, after all, no, no one in 1789 had been born in the United States of America, or very few. And there had to be rules as to who is a citizen and who isn't. Uh, Your Honor. to do with naturalization? Um, your Honor, this Court has held in the past, and, and most notably in Rogers versus Belli, that the um, authority to 
grant citizenship at birth using when a citizenship derives from the naturalization clause. Um, now, whether in the absence of that clause, uh, Congress could still go forward, I don't know, because we, you know, the Court hasn't had to confront that issue. Well, if Congress said everyone in 17, uh, 1780 who has been born in the United States is a citizen of the United States, would that have been naturalizing everybody? Uh, <clears throat> Your Honor, I, I think it would depend upon what the term naturalization meant even at that time. We know what it means now because Congress itself has defined it in the statute to apply only to those individuals who have citizenship that is prospective only. And here, uh, Mr. Belay and his son come forward with a claim for citizenship that relates back to birth. So it's clearly not in the same category as naturalization is defined under the, the current statute. But it is, it is naturalization in the broader sense of referring to the constitutional authority. That, that's correct, but in implementing — to that extent, I think it makes it somewhat difficult to distinguish, Fialo. Are you arguing that we need to reverse — Fialo, if necessary? Um, Your Honor, we don't believe the Fialo must be reversed in order to, to rule in our favor because of the distinction that we've just discussed. However, uh, as we indicate in our brief, there are um, reasons to reassess Fialo given, uh, in particular, the uh, subsequent development of equal protection law that might suggest that the result in that case is one that the Court would no longer If you were to re-examine Fialo, I suppose, under your view, the amendment in 1986 to the statute involved in Fialo that adopted the position of the dissenters in Fialo would also be unconstitutional because it basically followed the same pattern as this statute does. Uh, That's correct, Your Honor, yes, um, because it it retains the sex-based classifications um, of course, there the, the Congress was not responding to a finding of unconstitutionality, so they weren't bound by that kind of ruling. Ms. Davis, may we go back a few steps because you said something that surprised me. I know that um, the Solicitor General took the line in its brief that there are only two kinds of citizens born in the United States and everybody else for constitutional purposes is naturalized. My grandson was born in Paris of U.S. citizen parents. I had never considered him a naturalized citizen of the United States, but is that his correct status? Um, Your Honor, we don't quarrel with the um, construction that Rogers versus Belli adopted, which is that uh, citizenship at birth is a form of naturalization. However, what we argue is that the Congress, in implementing that power, has made a distinction between naturalization under the statute and citizenship at birth under the statute, then the implications of that, dis- that distinction are that the, that the plenary power of Congress to regulate immigration does not extend to citizenship at birth because citizenship at birth relates back to the date of birth because um, naturalization is defined to be prospective only, because there isn't a requirement of an oath of allegiance in order to have citizenship at birth acknowledged. Can such a person be denaturalized? Uh, Your Honor, I believe that um, uh, <clears throat> that person would would be covered in the same way that the citizens of uh, concerned in Ephraim in those cases were by the um, the Constitution for denaturalization purposes. That person could have additional uh, conditions placed on citizenship that would not be appropriate for a Yusolese citizen or um, yes, for for a Yusolese citizen. So, for example, the conditions placed on the uh, individual in Rogers versus Belli, who was a citizen at birth, the residency conditions are permissible under the Constitution, even though if those conditions are not filled, the individual will lose citizenship at the time that they fail to comply with those conditions. Ms. Davis, I gather your position would be different if, in addition to the three conditions that you mentioned, there were a fourth condition, and that is that the child uh, of the American father uh, swear allegiance to the United States. If the child of the American Yes, yes. Uh, Before he could retroactively be deemed a United States citizen from birth, in addition to the other three factors, he must swear allegiance to the United States. Your Honor, no, our argument would not be different. I'm raising that because it's an indication of the fact that Congress — I thought your argument hinged entirely upon the fact that there's no problem about changing allegiances. And this would require him to change allegiance, uh, to swear allegiance to the United States uh, over whatever other country it come from. Yes. No, Your Honor, our, our, our argument doesn't hinge in, entirely on that. No. 
Um, but what I raised that what because it, it, it seems, seems to me so artificial to say that, that simply because you make the admission retroactive and, and say he shall be deemed to have been a citizen from birth, somehow the power of Congress to uh, uh, make people who were not born in this country and therefore automatically citizens, citizens, somehow becomes uh, — uh, abridged. I, I don't. I just don't see how the retroactivity. Uh, it's such an artificial device. Congress could make it retroactive or not retroactive. Your Honor, I, I believe that the argument that I'm making reflects the the construction of the statute. The statute itself makes a distinction between citizenship and citizenship at birth and naturalization. It lists in the Section 1401 use solely citizenship along with citizenship at birth. I understand that, but we're not talking about the statute. I can agree that you you can make a statutory distinction between those two situations, but does that convert into a constitutional distinction? And that's what you're arguing before us, that there are some things you can constitutionally do when you make the person retroactively uh, uh, from birth a United States citizen, or things that you can't do when you do that, that you could do if you didn't make him retroactively. Yes, Justice Scalia, the the issue is the extent of the plenary power doctrine, which this Court has, as I um, suggested earlier, has not always applied in the immigration area, and we believe that — It has never been applied in that whole line of cases. They're all cases of people who are admitted as aliens. So if it were to extend to such a case, it would be an extension. That, that's correct, Your Honor. Applying it to citizens and citizens at birth would extend the plenary power doctrine beyond where it has ever been extended in the, in the past. Well, that assumes that the person is not an alien simply because Congress says the person shall be retroactively deemed a citizen. But for constitutional purposes, it seems to me, as opposed to statutory purposes, whether the person is an alien or not uh, should depend upon whether the person is a natural-born citizen of the United States or, or whether citizen, ci- citizenship must be conferred by Congress. Right. Well, in fact, Your Honor, you mentioned natural-born citizen, and many commentators believe that citizens at birth are deemed to be natural-born citizens. So this is a category of citizenship that traditionally has had a different uh, status than uh, naturalized citizenship for many, many years, for, se- for centuries. The debate over whether someone born abroad could be a candidate president. for president. Correct, Your Honor. Um, <clears throat> but someone, uh, someone born abroad is not in the same class as someone of born jus solis uh, here in the United States, which the, they are citizens by virtue of the 14th Amendment, are they? That's correct, Your Honor. However, the statute, the Immigration Nationality Statute, treats those use solely citizenship citizens and citizens at birth in the same section. So they clearly are contemplating that many of the same protections are going to apply to those citizens. May I just clarify one thing? Uh, your view is the statute's invalid on its face, which, as I take it, means that the requirements as to the children of female parents have to be applied in the same way to children of male American citizen parents born abroad. So that anyone anywhere in the world at any time can can prove that his parent, his father was an American citizen, has been a citizen since that person's birth, even if it was 60 years ago. Uh, Your Honor, uh, according to the remedy that we've proposed, there would still be some criteria to be met. Yes, but okay, the other that than would, those applied to children of of mother of mother of, 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 of whose mother was an American citizen. A mother currently can sponsor a child to transmit citizenship at any time during the child's Correct. life. Our argument is that a father um, that it, that has precisely the same right had, should have the same right. The remedy that this court should impose should be. Well, it one doesn't that gives have the, the right. It's the whether he has the, he has already done it merely by virtue of being a citizen and by having lived in the United States for a certain period of time. What this Court has indicated, both in, in Rogers v. Bella and also in a majority of the justices but, but in the case. But that's your case, position. Yes, stated that, that it's a recognizing, recognition of existing citizenship and continuing <laughs> well, citizenship. If, if we agreed with your equal protection argument, I suppose we would have the alternative to say not simply that the father is pushed into the same favorable position as the mother, but the mother is pushed into the same unfavorable position as the father. Uh, Your Honor, that would remedy the equal protection issue, but we believe that it would run contrary to what we know about the Court's principles in crafting a remedy. Has the Court ever, in those extension versus invalidation cases, has it ever 
um, taken the route of lessening the benefits instead of equalizing up? Has it ever equalized down instead of up? We have not been able to find a case where there has been equal, equalization down, as you, as you say. But, but it's always been, the first time. <laughs> in, in, in this case, the, the, the government's uh, argument uh, of uh, the stateless person problem takes much more prominence than it did in our earlier case. Of, and that uh, would, would seem to state a, a rational basis for this distinction. Would, would you comment on the government's argument in this regard? Certainly. I, I mean, our position is that they have, need to meet the heightened scrutiny standard. But well, even, and, and I, I think it might meet that as well. But would you comment on that? Sure. Um, the, uh, the issue is whether or not — well, to, to start out — we believe that that issue is not properly in the case because we haven't challenged the physical presence requirements here. And the government, as well as Congress, have indicated that the way they have dealt with statelessness, the concerns about statelessness, is to have differential physical presence requirements for mothers and fathers. Uh, Mr. Belay doesn't have standing to challenge those. He meets both those physical presence requirements. If the remedy that we seek is imposed, uh, those physical presence requirements will remain and will continue to do the job that the government says they are needed for in terms of addressing the potential for statelessness. But even beyond that, even assuming that it is in the case, um, the uh, risk of statelessness is not gender-specific. There are a number of nations that, uh, and this is set out in the Equality Now amicus brief, which uh, was submitted to the Court, there are a number of countries which have laws that are gender-neutral, so that there isn't any greater risk of statelessness for children of mothers than there is of fathers. Some of those laws are Well, but there are some nations that, that, are, that are not in that classification, are they not? There are some nations that are not at that level. There are some nations where there's a greater risk of statelessness for children of fathers, and those those children are currently not getting the benefit of the generous physical presence requirements. For example, um, Canada has a provision that uh, says that if a child is born abroad and doesn't maintain connections with Canada, that they will lose their citizenship by age 28. Well, by age 28, the child of a U.S. father, or the father can no longer transmit the citizenship to the child. So, in fact, that child of a U.S. father is at much greater risk of of statelessness than a child of a U.S. mother who... Uh, uh, had a child with a Canadian citizen abroad. Um, so the, the government could much better address its concerns about statelessness by either having a more generous physical presence requirements across, across the board because it's any, any requirement increases the risk of statelessness. So it could have more generous, requir- more generous provisions across the board, or it could have one that's tailored to the specific countries where statelessness is at issue for mothers or for fathers, instead well, of one well, that — I understand, though, that we are now engaged in an academic discussion, because in this case he has no standing to raise that problem since he amply meets the residence requirement. So he can't raise somebody else's case. Exactly right. I mean, the, the remedy that we seek, the, the court would have to go beyond the four corners of the complaint or the, of the issue here, the case here, in order to address the physical presence requirements. And it's, the things that hold him back, the two things, seem to me to have nothing to do with the statelessness concern anyway, the formal acknowledgement of paternity and the proof of support. Before 18. That's correct, Justice Ginsburg. Has nothing I, to do with statelessness. And as I said, in fact, it may increase the risk of statelessness because any barrier that's placed on transmittal of citizenship increases the risk of statelessness, especially an absolute cutoff at age 18. Are you saying that the, the children of uh, American parents born abroad, of whom there are millions and millions, are naturalized citizens and could never be president like George Romney couldn't have run for president? The, I'm sorry, the children of parents yes, born abroad I mean, are natural. Their, their, their citizenship is conferred by statute, and they are citizens from birth. And there are probably tens of millions of them. And George Romney was one of them. And uh, I had not thought that they were naturalized citizens. I thought they were citizens who were citizens by virtue of their birth, and they're citizens from birth. But you're, you were saying, well, they're the same as naturalized. Or um, maybe I misunderstood. <clears throat> yes, I mean, Your Honor, the... Um, the wording of the Constitution is natural-born citizens for purposes of being president or, or vice president. And what — I haven't done the research myself. What commentators say is that natural-born is the equivalent of — includes, encompasses, use soli and use sanguinis. And that's, that's a different so, term than naturalized. Then, then 
those who are born abroad of an American parent are natural-born citizens, in your view. That's correct. Contrasted with naturalized citizens who would have been aliens who previously were aliens and would have become citizens by virtue of a naturalization law. Is that right? Your Honor, I guess the question is whether the term naturalized in the Constitution also encompasses natural-born citizens. Well, I, it would, for present Bell, I purposes, what we're did. interested in is what standard of review to apply and whether the extremely deferential standard applies to these natural-born citizens. I think it's, I think it's totally clear that you sanguinous citizenship has a different history than naturalized citizenship and has traditionally by this court as well as by Congress been treated differently. But has not been called natural-born citizenship. I mean, isn't it clear that the natural-born requirement in the Constitution was intended explicitly to to exclude some Englishmen who had come here and, and spent some time here and then went back and raised their families in England? They, they, did, not, they did not want that. They wanted natural-born Americans. Yes, I, mean, I think I mean, by the same It is token, your solely, isn't it? By the same token, uh, one could say that the um, provision would apply now to ensure that Congress can't apply uh, suspect classifications to keep certain individuals from aspiring to those offices. Oh, maybe. So, I'm, I'm just referring to the, the, the meaning of natural born within the Constitution. I don't think you're disagreeing. It requires you solely, doesn't it? No, Your Honor, I, I do disagree with that. I, I believe that it encompasses you sanguine citizenship. Many academic writers, there's a debate over There's that. a debate over There's it. a debate over my, whether my grandson is a natural-born Whether citizen. he can be vice president. I think he is. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the interesting thing about that provision, it requires that he be natural-born at the time of the adoption of the Constitution. That's what it literally says. All right. <laughs> okay. Um, to, to return to that issue briefly, um, the the — I want to make sure that the Court understands that uh, applying heightened scrutiny does not mean that the government then doesn't get to make its case that the concerns about dual citizenship or concerns about statelessness might meet heightened scrutiny. They can still come forward and in those unusual instances where they can establish that uh, they meet that standard, apply classifications that would otherwise be suspect. We believe those will be rare cases, but it's not that there is no review. Uh, what it means is simply that you saying or that the citizens transmitting citizenship would be able to invoke the same constitutional standards as, as, uh, as are, are usually invoked. I reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Ms. Davis. Uh, Mr. Needler, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the naturalization clause of the United States Constitution commits to Congress the plenary power inherent in the sovereignty of every nation to determine which aliens will be granted United States citizenship. As this Court said in the the Ginsburg case, no alien has the slightest right to naturalization unless all statutory requirements are complied with. Well, you've heard all these arguments this morning that this isn't a case of naturalization and not part of Congress's plenary power when a child is born uh, of a parent that's a U.S. citizen. With with respect to that, I I think this Court's decision in Wong uh, Kim Ark is dispositive. There, the Court traced the history of United States citizenship with reference to the common law of England prior to the adoption of the Constitution. And in that case, the Court pointed out that at common law, in order to be a citizen at common law, it was necessary for the person to be born in England. The citizenship conferred on people who were born abroad to British subjects was conferred only by statute. In other words, it was not regarded historically in England as as a fundamental aspect. That's that's not so. I mean, you're right in saying by statute. Normally, in all countries, citizenship was conferred by statute. The 14th Amendment was passed to the problem of slavery. But But uh, statutes traditionally transmitted citizenship most cases, through blood. Isn't that true? um, So would you say that when the United States passes a statute like any other country that transmits citizenship through blood, that they treat that person who results as a citizen the same way precisely as a naturalized citizen? 
Yes, I'm not disputing that. The point, the point I'm making is that th- this Court held in Wong Kim Ark and also held in Rogers versus Belli that the, that the conferral of citizenship on someone born abroad to a United States citizen is encompassed in the naturalization clause. And the important thing about Wong Kim Ark is the Court distinguished uh, persons born to U.S. citizens abroad, not on the ground that that was a more fundamental form of citizenship, but, if anything, a less fundamental form of citizenship. So, in other words, in your view, the hundreds of millions of people by now who may have been born abroad of American parents are suddenly subject, when their constitutional rights are at stake, to a less basic review by the courts than citizens who were born in the no, United once States. They are citizens once of service people, citizens of, uh, one, of, of millions of people who have lived abroad. Once the person is a citizen, of course, the, then that citizen, like every other citizen, is entitled to all the rights of the citizen under the United States Constitution. But the question here is who will be entitled to enter the citizenship of the United States to begin with? And in that respect, we think this case is identical to at, at least as strong as Fialo versus Bell, and if anything, stronger, because it is not merely the question of who will be entitled to physically enter the United States, but who will be, who will be regarded as a member of our society on a permanent basis. Citizenship is a essentially irreversible. An alien can be expelled. A citizen is a permanent well, member of the community. Mr. Needler, when you say, when you say in effect, that all citizens uh, are, tr- are treated alike, uh, certainly a naturalized citizen in, in the non-argumentative use of someone who has been an alien and comes here can have his citizenship revoked. Oh, abs- absolutely. No, I didn't, I didn't mean to suggest. I didn't. Yes. It, it, it's absolutely clear that a naturalized citizen uh, uh, can have his naturalization revoked, for example, if it was procured by fraud. But it, the other important, and, and this was significant in Rogers versus Belli, which had to do with the constitutionality of a condition subsequent uh, for a citizen, a, a person who was born abroad to United States citizens. In that case, it, it was it was the um, uh, parallel provision here in 1401G uh, un- until, I believe it was 1978, someone in that situation, had, the child had to reside in the United States for some period of time uh, after birth in order to establish the requisite connection with the United States. And that was challenged on the ground that the person having been declared a citizen at birth, there could not be a condition subsequent to perfecting it. And this, this Court upheld that provision in Rogers versus Belli, and importantly, it did so by distinguishing the, the children of U.S. parents brought a born abroad from those who were born in the United States with the suggestion that Congress has greater latitude with respect to the naturalization of those persons than it does to others, precisely because they are not encompassed by the terms of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment refers to citizens who are born or naturalized in the United States, and the Court pointed out that, that persons who are, who are born to United States citizens abroad do not fall within that description and therefore are not citizens for for. Uh, 14th Amendment purposes. So, if any, may I ask just a a, a question? I don't. Are there any statistics anywhere that tell us the size of either of the classes of children born abroad of an unmarried female parent and those born abroad of an unmarried male parent? Do we have any idea how many people? I'm sorry, I do not not know the. I do not know the. the uh, totals. I think it, um, the statistics that were cited in this Court's opinion in Miller versus Albright suggest that the, that the pool uh, is, is probably larger for the U.S. citizen, uh, children of U.S. citizen fathers rather than uh, mothers, by, which, which I think, that, by the that's way — That's unquestionable, isn't it? And isn't that perhaps one of the, one of the uh, uh, reasons behind the differentiation in the statute? I it, mean, it, it may there be. are large populations of children of the United States servicemen in the Far East and in Germany. And uh, service personnel, and I expect very few of these are, are the children of, uh, of female I, I, service I, personnel. I think that's true. And I, I, one point I wanted to make, uh, j- just as an aside here, that goes that would go critically to the question of remedy in this case. If we if we were uh, assuming Mr. that a court before could have we get to that, why would it? You said it in your brief, and it it seems to me you have a tremendous hurdle on the beginning. Um, if the notion is that there are these men out there who are being Johnny Appleseed around the um, (laughs) — to prove by clear and convincing evidence that they are the father, for the person even — the woman even to identify this person, it seems to me, for most of the cases, 
of men who don't want to be fathers, who have, in fact, sired children abroad. It isn't difficult at all to escape that obligation. All they have to do is say, you know, I have nothing to do with this person. I met her once, and that was it. Well, there, I, I think there's probably a wide variation of the fact pattern. I, I took the question. I thought we were assuming on, on that the, it was not. I thought we were assuming that with modern techniques, it's very easy for to, to establish the relationship now. Uh, what is our assumption? It's difficult or it's easy? Well, I, I, I took the question to be identifying the father. Once we find out who he is. Right, right. And, he, and even — But even, it may take an awful lot of resources to find out who he is, to get him to take it. It may or may not, but if the, if the possibility of citizenship was available to people who, who had no prior um, assumption that they had any claim to United States citizenship, it, it is valuable enough as, uh, in, in, in the world community that we would expect people uh, to look for it. In many, it, many cases, all the child would have to do is ask his mother. In many cases, that is correct. I would like to go back to the, to the point about Fiala versus Bell, because we, as I said, I do believe that this case is, is controlled by Fiala versus Bell. If anything, the reasons for deference to, the, to congressional powers are stronger here be, than they were in Fiala versus Bell. Before you do that, Mr. Needler, you did say something. I keep worrying about this grandson of mine. You said that he's not a citizen for purposes of the 14th Amendment, but I assume he had the same equal protection rights, Absolutely. due process rights. Once a person is a citizen, they are a member of our of, of, of our of our national community and entitled to all of the rights of any but other. Do you think citizen. he might be denaturalized the way a naturalized citizen could be? There, there would have to be. I, 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 uh, certainly as a statutory matter and, and perhaps as a constitutional matter, some defect in the original naturalization or the original But there was no naturalization. No, I, but that, that's why I, I think the prospect — I mean, I suppose if, 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 if uh, in a situation like this the child was recognized as a U.S. citizen on the, on the ground that the parent was a U.S. citizen and then it turned out that the parent was not a U.S. citizen after all, then the, the child's — uh, the child's uh, citizenship could be revoked on the ground that it was that it was fraudulently or improperly procured. So it would be a situation where the factual predicate for the grant of citizenship in the first place was erroneous. The problem with those things is usually is insofar as you get a lesser degree of, for example, procedural protections. In certain instances, there are conflicts about what the facts are, and insofar if it is ever true that a person who involves in naturalization gets less than full judicial review, would that same be true of, say, my daughter or millions of others, say, servicemen's children who are born abroad I think and who and who and who uh, the, the children of servicemen and women who are abroad and not born in the United States. I, I would naturalize people get lesser protection, I, less I, than full review. I, be, I believe that, that if the question ever arose of the denaturalization of someone who was born abroad to United States citizens, the same standards would apply uh, to anyone who was naturalized in the United States and therefore is a 14th Amendment citizen. And I believe the standard for denaturalization is clear and convincing evidence. I'm not sure of that, but I believe I'm that. concerned that your time will expire before you've addressed either point that may be critical here, the application of Fialo. And if we disagree with you and think there's some equal protection problem, what about the remedy? Right. I, will you try to touch on both of those? I, I, I will. Uh, Back, uh, with respect to Fialo, uh, we think that all of the reasons why deference to uh, the political branches in, in this area uh, applied to uh, immigration in Fialo apply equally here. First of all, in Fialo itself, the Court lumped together immigration and naturalization at, at page 79, I believe it's 792 of its opinion, in, in describing Congress's plenary powers. Um, and. Uh, also, uh, first of all, a reason why Fialo applies is it's uh, the question of who is going to enter our society. Certainly the, the children or parents in Fialo were seeking to come into the United States with the hope eventually of being citizens. In Fialo, it was a two-step uh, task. Here it's a one-step, but, but we don't think that the analysis in Fialo should change on that. Uh, and therefore, uh, the, the deciding who should be a citizen is also an aspect of who is an alien. They are, they are flip sides of the same question. And Congress has plenary power to control which aliens will be entitled to enter the United States. Third, it's intimately tied up with foreign relations. And again, this is a point that was made in Fialo itself. 
There, the Court rejected the proposition at page 730 that the concerns about foreign relations only have to do with situations where there are grave threats to the national security or the general welfare of the United States. The Court said it had never uh, uh, deferred to the branches depending upon whether there was some threat of that nature or some more individualized determination as to who will be entitled to enter the United Mr. States. Heba, I have this, this problem with it. it. You would truly have a huge statelessness problem if you didn't recognize that the child born abroad to U.S. citizen is a U.S. citizen, because, as you point out, in most countries in the world, they go by blood, not by land of birth. So, but you don't have that situation with an, an alien coming to our shores as a citizen of some place. So, the the uh, you call the child born abroad an alien, but in most places in the world, that child would not be a citizen of the place in which that person is born. Isn't that so? Well. Uh Again, that may depend. I mean, if you had a child born abroad to, US, to two U.S. citizen parents, that, that may be true. It may not be true, depending on, on the country. Uh, but well, I it, thought you said in your brief that in most places, and I think it's right, they do not go on just solely. They go on um, the parentage. Uh, yes, there are countries that go both ways. But, the, the, what, what you're, but, you're, but, but the person coming in in Fialo is a c- citizen of some place. That is true. And, of course, the, the, someone, someone declared to be a citizen under this statute may also be a citizen of someplace else as well. There are questions of dual nationality that can arise. But you brought up the problem. One, you said one of the reasons for this is that the child of the mother will be a citizen of no place if not of the United States. That, that is the justification for the, for the shorter uh, residency requirement because that is apt to be true in many cases. But the, the, the broader point uh, — and, 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 and on, on that point, uh, you, you heard, uh, obviously, the colloquy between me and the Petitioner's Council. Uh, the Petitioner's Council indicates, uh, oh, well, it's just, there's stateless problems with uh, — on the side of the father, too, just, just as great. They, they are certainly not just as great. Uh, there, there, there may be an isolated country here and there where the problem would arise. But your question and Justice Ginsburg's questions highlight — the, uh, another reason for deference to Congress in this area, and that is that Congress has to strive to make the laws of this nation with respect to immigration and naturalization respond or make sense vis-a-vis the laws of not just one other nation, but many, many other nations. Mr. Needler, if Congress went back to the way it was, when everything was determined by the father citizenship, go back before 1934. Suppose Congress accepts your argument, or we accept your argument, and say plenary power, they can do whatever they damn please. So they say children born abroad of fathers who are U.S. citizens can become U.S. citizens, but not children who are born abroad of U.S. citizen mothers where the father is an alien. That's the way it used to be in the bad old days. I take it from your argument, if Congress wanted to go back to that it would not offend anything in the U.S. Constitution. It would, so. it would be subject to judicial review, and under the facially, facially legitimate uh, bona fide standard of Kleindienst versus Mandel and Fialo, it would be necessary to ask what Congress was up to in a situation like that. So we are, we are not suggesting that Suppose there Congress wants to restore the way it was, the way it was for most of our nation's history. Well, it, I, that it, the father's citizenship it was, it gets transferred to the child, not the mother. It, 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 uh, given the developments of, of uh, equal protection law in this country, it, 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 this Court might well conclude that it, that it would not be facially legitimate uh, for Congress simply to decide to go back to, as you described it, the bad old days where all rights were thought to de- derive from the father or the husband. So we, we are not suggesting that, but this law, this law is fundamentally different from the situation that you are positing. This law that, is that might, you said that might violate equal protection, but even under a, some plenary power notion. On, on the, the standard that the court applied in Fiala versus Bell was that uh, was the facially legitimate standard uh, drawn from Kleindienst versus Mandel. The law is subject to scrutiny. And, and whatever, whatever um, rationale is posited has to be regarded as this, by this Court as Is there any case in all this, the area where they do apply the lesser standard that has ever come out against the government, against the classification that Congress made? I believe the uh, Watchup uh, decision that uh, struck down the provision that you're referring to, the pre-1934 uh, decision, if I'm remembering correctly, the Ninth, Ninth Circuit decision, I believe, invalidated it under that under that uh, standard. 
Could the statute we're considering here meet heightened scrutiny we believe it, to think that applied? We, we believe it could, because fundamentally what this is about is trying to put uh, fathers of children born out of wedlock uh, abroad in a position where they can do the same thing that a mother can in order to put them on an equal plane with, with women. It is, it is not a product of trying to discriminate. It is, a, it is a product of trying to put men or fathers in, in a position where they can do the same thing uh, that mothers can do. And let me explain why. Why wouldn't the simplest, simpler way to do that be simply to have one uniform support or recognition standard? I mean, why, why do you have to have differential standards in the statute if that's all you want to do? On, on, your th- on, on the factual assumptions that you're making, which may, may well be true, uh, it would be easier for the children of, of, uh, of American mothers born abroad to satisfy the standard. But that doesn't seem to be an argument uh, for having differential standards. Well, um if I may explain what, what uh, as we understand it, uh, is going on here precisely, and that is that Congress made a judgment that it wanted, while the child is still a minor, for there to be established a legal, formal, rec- recognized relationship between parent and child. Uh, after the child is no longer a minor, at that point the child is an adult and can seek citizenship in his own right. In this very ca- case, Petitioner Nguyen could have applied for citizenship in his own right after he became an adult and did not do so. The idea is that what, under these naturalization, this naturalization provision, while one is still a child, one is a, uh, under the care of the parent. After adulthood, that's not so. So what Congress was focusing on was not just biological paternity, but a recognized formal relationship that outside people could look at and say, yes, that is a father-child or mother-child relationship. So and why not have the same criteria to determine whether that relationship, if proven, is adequate for, uh, for, for citizenship well, purposes? We, we, we believe that, that uh, let me start by explaining what, what the situation is for married parents. When you have a child born to married parents, you have a legal relationship with mother and father at the moment of birth, with the mother by virtue of the birth, uh, and with the father by virtue of the marriage to the mother. That marriage legitimates the child and establishes a legal father-child relationship. Where you do not have married children, there is no lawful relationship between ma- or legal relationship between man and woman that in turn creates a legal relationship between father and child. Something else needs to be done. In the case of the mother, the mother's relationship to the child, the legal relationship, is established at the moment of birth in the same way as it is for a married mother. Uh, in the, the mother's name will typically be on a birth certificate or at the very least the, uh, the birth will be witnessed by all present. There will not be any question, not just of the biological. But this uh, all goes to matters. It seems to me that this all goes to matters of proof. What, what you're pointing out is that it would be much easier for the child of the American mother to prove the things that, that uh, perhaps we would all agree should be proven if citizenship is to rec- be recognized. But I don't see how it goes to the justification of the differential standards. Well, it, it's it's. It's not a differential standard, it has, uh, uh, with all respect. It is, an, it is an attempt by Congress to equalize two situations that start out quite unequal. Because, as I described, at the, at the moment of birth, the mother has a legal relationship with the child. That is true in the United States. It is true virtually throughout the world. The child, the child is born to the mother. The mother has custody as a legal matter. And, and before that child can be taken away from the mother, the mother would have to give it up, relinquish rights, legal rights, or they would have to be taken away from her. In the case of the father, that is not true until paternity is established in some formal or legal way. And all that Congress has done here is said that that has to be done before the age of 18. And as this You're court talking about children not born to marriage because it yes, children not be in the old days, even though the mother bore the child. She was not the parent that counted. The right. father. Pri- prior to 1986, the only way that that legal relationship could be established with respect to the child who was born out of wedlock was by legitimation. And why before 18? Uh, why, why before 18? 1986. Because People, Congress, way, Congress decided that, it, that derivative citizenship from a U.S. citizen uh, should, only, um, sh- should only apply while the child is, in fact, a child. Uh, while there, well, you, have the, you have the formal legal relationship, which can then be a springboard 
for a, uh, for a practical relationship between parent and child. But not only that, citizenship itself is a formal relationship between the citizen and the country. And Congress could reasonably conclude that in order to recognize a formal legal relationship between a child and the United States, a central element of that, the relationship of the child to parent, should have a comparable formality and recognition so that, so that it is recognized by the, parent, the father and child and by those looking at that relationship as not just a biological relationship, perhaps even a deep biological relationship, but a lawful, formal, recognized one that the rest of the world and this country can look to because citizenship, in fact, carries rights and responsibilities on behalf of both the citizen and the nation, rights of protection, uh, rights of uh, duties to uh, serve in the armed forces. And Congress could reasonably decide that it is not sufficient that out there somewhere during the child's minority there was someone who was a biological parent. It is necessary that the, fo- that the formal legal relationship be regarded as in existence during, during yeah, the suppose, minority. Suppose the father accepts all this. I mean — but just doesn't do it in the way that it's said, or suppose a mother. I mean, you, you understand the, the problem. You can create situations where the mother's not the caretaker, where the uh, father is the caretaker, and you, you get everything the other way around. What, what is the answer to that? I mean, well, what, what's the — or you could be in a country where it doesn't descend one way, or you could be in a state where they have different relationships. I mean, why not tie it to the relation or to the statelessness or, or to the thing you're aiming at rather than to gender? Well, one of the things that Congress is aiming at is the existence of the legal relationship by 18. That's, that's set forth explicitly in well, the — We, in we the, do in that the even domestically, don't we? I mean, we, we, we do not treat biological fathers as necessarily having any rights, whereas we do treat biological mothers as having rights. That is correct, unless and until the father's uh, paternity is formally established. And and isn't isn't that the crucial point? Isn't it the case that if you were arguing this case 20 years ago, before DNA testing had become current, one of your arguments, uh, and and one that we we might well accept, would be there's, there's a terribly difficult problem of proof here. And one of the interests of the United States uh, is, is to avoid fraud uh, in, in, in claims of citizenship. But that issue is gone now, isn't it? It's not entirely gone because uh, while DNA it, — it's important not to focus uh, — solely on the domestic situation in the United States and looking at this law. And that goes both with respect to um, uh, assumptions about proving paternity and assumptions about what the law is or ought to be. The other nations in the world are not necessarily living in, under the same availability of medical care. Well, if that's, if that's the case, then, then, the, uh, then the proof of the relationship is simply going to be much more difficult. Uh, for the child who is in this other country without that, the that's, benefit. That's true, but the and, age And age how does the United States suffer uh, simply because under a, a, a non-differential standard, the child abroad without a DNA lab nearby is going to have a tough time proving the well, relationship? Yes, although the age 18 would help to, provi- would help to deter some, some fraudulent claims. But that's not our principal submission here. Our principal submission is that the recognition of the legal relationship is itself a, a legitimate interest. And, and in this respect, we think this case is very and, similar. And isn't the answer to that then require the indicia of recognition to be the same for mothers and fathers? Well, uh, con- Congress could reasonably conclude that with respect to mothers, and this is true of mothers both uh, uh in wedlock and out of wedlock, that the legal relationship is established at the moment of birth. This Court pointed that out in the Lolly decision and, and pointed it out. We quote at page 34 of, of our brief from this Court's decision in Lair versus Robertson, which we think is very instructive. There the Court said, the mother carries and bears the child. In this sense, her parental relationship is clear. The validity of the father's parental claims must be gauged by other measures. Okay, but that that simply means that Congress has nothing to lose by a differential standard. It simply means that the child of the mother is going to have an easier time proving it. But if if Congress could conclude that in virtually every case that that, uh, requirement is satisfied at the moment of birth, it would be unnecessary to require the mother to go through that. And, in fact, if that that sort of requirement would be imposed now, there could be all sorts of children of U.S. citizen mothers who would never have taken a step like that. Mr. Needler, your time's almost up. Not a word yet about remedy. 
I know, but I think we need to talk about it uh, briefly, if we could, in yes. any time remaining. Suppose that we think there is an equal protection problem and uh, remedy has to be addressed. Uh, on the remedy, we have we, a severability clause. There so. is a severability clause, but it, but uh, we think that the proper remedy would be to sever 1409 and let and put the put the ball in Congress's court to decide to how to deal with this particular problem. And we think that's true for several reasons. For one thing, if this court were to broadly declare that a whole new category of persons were United States citizens, there may be some question as to whether Congress could undo that. Uh, that, coupled with the point that this Court made in Ginsburg and Pangilinan, that it's questionable whether a, whether a Court can ever declare someone to be a citizen when Congress has not so declared, we think way powerfully in the direction of, of striking Section 1409 and letting Congress uh, uh, decide what is the proper remedy in a situation. Mr. Needler, uh, how does that differ from the clause of the Constitution that says no money shall be drawn from the Treasury but in consequence of appropriations made by law. No money. And yet you know the whole line of cases from Frontiero to Westcott uh, that this Court thought was compatible with that clause. I don't see any difference, frankly, between those two. Because in, in our view, the admission to citizenship is so central to the formation of, of our society and our, and our society under the Constitution that it is fundamentally different. And this Court said um, that. No money shall be drawn from the Treasury but in consequences of appropriations made by law. Right. And, and in the situations you're describing, you're describing situations that arise wholly in the domestic context. May, Here I, ask we have this, may I ask you just one brief question? During, after our decision in Miller against Albright, did anyone in Congress raise this issue for further consideration to your knowledge? I'm not aware whether a bill was, a bill was introduced. Um, I did want to point out one, further, one last thing on the question of, uh, of remedy. If one thing is clear from 1940 until 1986, it is Congress did not want uh, U.S. citizenship to pass solely by virtue of, of mere biological paternity. Congress insisted on something more in 1940, in 1952, in 1986, in 1952. In all of those situations, Congress moved to make things easier for U.S. citizen fathers to transmit citizenship. From 1952 to 1986, only legitimation, which often meant marrying the mother, was adequate. In 1986, Congress tried to ease things, to make it easier for U.S. citizen fathers to put themselves in the same position as U.S. citizen mothers by providing for the acknowledgement of the child in writing so that it would not be necessary to resort to the varying state laws regarding legitimation or elsewhere. The last point I would like to make with respect to uh, two other points. One, uh, this is a transaction that occurred abroad, not in the United States, and occurred and involved one alien and one U.S. citizen. This is not a situation in which the heightened scrutiny uh, under our Constitution would ordinarily be thought to apply because of a, of a solely domestic uh, setting. But I should point out that. Thank you, Mr. Needler. Uh, Ms. Davis, you have two minutes remaining. Uh, thank you. First, in response to Justice Stevens' question about whether or not any bill was introduced in Congress, no, there was not. Um, uh, Mr. Needler uh, spent a great deal of time talking about the legal relationship which he asserts is automatically established at the time of birth between a father and a child. In fact, as, uh, as this Court knows, that to the extent that that exists, it's a legacy of coverture and common law discrimination, which this Court has previously uh, condemned in Frontier. Do you think Lair against Robertson was correctly decided? I'm sorry? Do you think Lair against Robertson was correctly decided? Um, Your Honor, I think it can be distinguished from this case, aside from my, my view of its, um, its propriety. Uh, this, <clears throat> this uh, in Lair versus Robinson, the issue required uh, the state to decide between competing parents uh, and to do that quickly because of the emotional trauma involved with the adoption. Here, there isn't any need to create a um, hierarchy between parents, any need to create those kind of classifications to make that decision uh, proceed quickly. And so, but therefore, the government interests the are child in, in Lair? I mean, the, Lair, one of the grave concerns, I thought, was holding up an adoption, holding up placing a child in a secure setting. Here, you have none of that. I mean, it, it, it would benefit the child surely to be a U.S. citizen, and you're not hurting 
the mother. It's, the world's different from Lair. Right. Exactly, exactly Your Honor. Um, and uh, so, no, I don't believe that ruling in our favor in this case would require this Court to reassess the decision in Lair. In addition, uh, um, the Court ad- uh, asked about the question of the numbers that would be involved here. And there's no indication in the legislative history that the that Congress has been concerned about that in looking at this statute, as Mr. Needler just indicated. In fact, the statute has progressively gotten more liberal. And I think that that uh, underscores the fact that in as this Court looks at the intent of Congress in crafting a remedy, that the Court should take into account that the Congress has progressively gotten more liberal in, in addressing this issue. Most recently, in 1986, the um, Congress eliminated the uh, or reduced the 10-year residency requirement down to five years. Now, that had a presumably a significant effect on the additional numbers of, of individuals who could seek transmission of citizenship under this law, yet there was no mention of that in the legislative history as being a factor that was influencing in any way Congress's uh, view of this. Um, in addition, uh, there are other indicia of Congress's intent. One is that Congress has itself moved away from this notion. Thank you, Ms. Davis. The case is submitted.